This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. There's a reason that when one party controls the White House and Congress, they tend to be very ambitious with their agenda. It's rare. In the last 50 years, only six first-term presidents have been graced with their party in the majority in both the House and Senate. And for one of those presidents, George W. Bush, that only lasted a few months. The others were Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Of those, only Carter held onto the majority in both chambers after the first midterm election of his presidency. Clinton lost both chambers to the GOP. Obama and Trump lost the House but held the Senate. Which brings us to Joe Biden, who came into office with narrow majorities last year but with a big to-do list. Biden gave his first State of the Union address on Tuesday, the same day as the midterm primary season got underway down in Texas. Nathan Gonzalez, the publisher of Inside Elections and Roll Call's political analyst, joins us on political theater to talk about midterm dynamics, whether states of the union can change the political dynamic of a midterm campaign season, and what he's seeing as a state of play in contests for the House and Senate. Nathan, hello. Hi. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad there's a little bit of news going on. Just just a little bit. As, as I mentioned, the uh, Texas primary uh, was last night, and uh, one of the members of the of the current members of the House, Fan Taylor, uh, Republican, uh, he uh, w- advanced to a runoff, uh, w- and the runoff campaign lasted uh, about eighteen hours or so before we just got word that he was leaving the uh, campaign because he has had an aff- he had an affair, and there's all kinds of weird allegations about uh it was somebody affiliated with isis it's just the kind of stuff that i mean when you think it can't get too weird it just gets weirder yeah people can google it if they if they want all the (laughs) the explicit details we're we're just getting caught up ourselves here uh but aside from the isis bride uh texas congressman uh (laughs) scandal nathan uh President Biden gave his first State of the Union address on Tuesday night. I mean, he he basically said that, uh, I mean, aside from some of the Ukraine-Russia uh, war stuff, you know, which was basically a, a fairly unifying uh, line of, of the, the address, uh, he, when he got down to talking about his agenda for, you know, whether it's social uh, safety spending or, you know, how to address inflation and so forth, I mean, he, he kind of went with the Policies that Democrats have been pursuing over the last uh, year since since taking office in 2021 uh, did that did that speech strike you as one in which the president seemed aware of the low approval ratings that he is uh, dealing with as well as the challenges for Democrats as they look at November? I, I think he was President Biden was aware of the challenges, right? I mean, he led with the news of the day, uh, eventually, and then addressed the economy. Then he addressed the pandemic. Uh, then he addressed a lot of things that Democrats want to do legislatively that they haven't been able to do uh, up until this point. Uh, I, I think one of the consistent struggles with President Biden has been that he has arguably already accomplished the mission that he was 
that he was told that a majority of voters told him to do, and that was defeat President Trump. And and now, you know, he and the Democratic majorities have been trying to do, you know, push the the envelope and, and get legislation passed, and there just isn't enough. There just aren't enough votes, and there just isn't the appetite to get it done. And then when you uh, look at the problems that he has inherited, and now Democratic uh, leadership has is being held responsible for that is weighing on his, his job numbers and his job numbers don't get that. They're, they're particularly low because he has almost universal disapproval from Republicans, more independents disapprove of disapprove of his job rating. And he only has about 75% of Democrats approving of the job he's doing. So he has a little bit of room to grow if he can get all of those Democrats back, but I'm skeptical that it's just going to, there's going to be a, a huge change uh, that suddenly, you know, m- more Americans are going to wake up and, and he's going to be wildly popular uh, because there are all these these uh, problems and, and pressures that are, that are weighing on him. And it's the State of the Union. It's kind of one of the last uh, pomp and circumstance sort of events that we have in, in this country anymore with regard to the government. But I'm just skeptical that it, it, it really is going to change any hearts and minds. I mean, I think we're at the point where words don't matter. It's about actions and outcomes. And so we'll have to see, you know, how how he responds to the various crises and then how particularly independent voters, how they react to uh, the job that he's doing. Because ultimately, you know, this the midterms are usually referenda on the president's party, uh, on, on the president. And if the voters don't like the job that the president is doing, they take it out on the president's party. Yeah. And, and actually, I just wanted to cite some of the numbers, um, you know, like of, of, you know, again, there are six in the last 50 years. I figured that was a good cutoff because once you get past 50, um, it, it, you know, Nixon never had, you know, a Republican majority in the House or Senate. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson, you know, was in office already as vice president and then became president when Kennedy. Died. It just gets too weird to try to keep track of all that stuff. And the 1950s were, I think, enough, were a long way a long time ago, but this is kind of the modern era, you know, of, of, of politics the last 50 years, you could argue. Um, and you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't look usually does not go very well. Um, you know, like, so leaving out Biden, we don't know his, uh, what's going to happen to the, in the midterms this year, uh, and leaving out Bush because Bush, you know, had a 50, 50 Senate, but he had Dick Cheney's tiebreaker vote, but he lost that when Jim Jeffords, uh, left the Republican party. So we won't count that either, but, Going back to Carter, um, Carter lost 15 House seats or, or, you know, the Democrats lost 15 House seats, but they held the House majority because they had 292 House seats, uh, which sounds just astonishing now that any either party would have that many uh, seats. And then they only lost three uh, uh, Senate seats. So they, they were able to hold the majority uh, in both uh, chambers. Now, they did. The Democrats did lose the Senate majority in 1980 in the in the Reagan Carter presidency, but that wasn't until Carter lost that year too. So it set the stage for it, but they did hold on. And he's the exception. You know, uh, Bill Clinton lost 52 House seats uh, 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 in Democrats in the House and eight Senate seats. He lost the majorities, uh, Democratic majorities in both chambers. uh, And and then it was, you know, kind of the new era of divided government again. Uh, and then Barack Obama lost 63 House seats and the House majority. Uh, he lost six Senate seats, but they held on uh, largely because Republicans ran some um, uh, 
interesting. Exotic, <laughs> exotic, exotic, not Joe exotic, but just exotic candidates uh, uh, in in 2010, and probably cost them the chance to take the majority. And then Donald Trump uh, lost 40 House seats and and the Republican majority in 2018, but they gained two Senate seats, which speaks to the oddity of of how uh, Senate you know election dynamics can sort of change. So, uh, in in general, I mean. The president, you know, of any for any first term president, uh, his party faces a lot of headwinds uh, going into this first midterm. Yeah, and and Jason, that that two that two thousand and eighteen uh, Republicans plus two Senate outcome is sometimes cited by Democrats this cycle, saying, "Well, Senate seats can be different, right? They can senators can buck um, can buck the trend," uh, and. Uh, but that was in large part due to the map, right? That it was a Republican leaning map. If it had been a different set of states, uh, Republicans would have lost Senate seats as well. Or Democrats point to 1998 and 2002. Only one of those was a first midterm, George W. Bush first midterm, but 1998 being Bill Clinton's second midterm, where um, where the president's party either gained or um, or broke or broke even, and it. Uh, and those, but those didn't buck the national trend. Those were actually with the midterm trend. It's just that the midterm trend was an aberration to midterms going back, you know, a hundred years. So right. Senate seats are you know, right now. I think the Senate is closer. The fight for the Senate is closer than the fight for the House. But we can't just the weight. I mean, Biden's job approval rating is mediocre to terrible. The generic ballot is favoring Republicans. I know that this is a race by race battle in both the Senate and the House, but it's just the margins are so close. Democrats don't have almost any room for error and Republicans have lots of opportunities to get what they need. Yeah. I, and actually, I, I should mention, too, that you, uh, you your your most recent uh, analysis for, for roll call was about Illinois and, uh, you know, they, they're Every state redraws their congressional maps, except, of course, for the uh, states that only have one seat, one at-large seat like Wyoming or Alaska. And um, Illinois is one of the very few states where the, the the Democrats control the governor's mansion and both chambers of the legislature and could also, uh, you know, is not under an independent redistricting commission. So they could actually they could gerrymander to their advantage. And uh, I think you came up with a term, which I kind of love, which is dummy mander. I can't claim credit for it. This has been out there, but yeah, I, I, I did use it, but I can't claim, I can't claim originality for it, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. The, the, and the dummy mander uh, is that, you know, Illinois, the, the way that they drew the seats, they, they, they tried to kind of, you know, stretch enough districts uh, around to accommodate uh, Democrats. And they ended up with like some member on member <laughs> races that they probably didn't need to uh, get into with Marie Newman and De- and uh, um, Sean Caston, Sean Caston in the Chicago land area. And, and in the Southern part of Illinois, which is really about as different from Chicago politics as you can get uh, in one state. Um, you know, they're, they're probably in, in some ways they may have made people like Rodney Davis stronger <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by, think, by their map. Um, yeah, and I so that's we, just a lost opportunity for them. You know? Yeah. And we, we can't forget that usually how parties define success in redistricting is not how many seats can you gain in the, in the first cycle of a decade after the lines are drawn, but can that map endure 
a decade uh, in which, and over the course of 10 years, there are often, uh, you know, your party might be doing great in a couple cycles and, and it's not great in a couple cycles. Can, can you uh, endure the, the lines that you draw? Can they endure the ups and downs of, of, of politics over the course of a decade? And while these, these districts might look good on paper in a normal election cycle or definitely a pro democratic party cycle, you know, this is not looking like a good cycle for Democrats. And so there, there are some vulnerabilities there that uh, Democrats might lose some seats that they in, drew for drew themselves intended to win, you know, by their party, but not um, but ultimately not win uh, this year. And I think some of the but it, if we take a step back that Democrats, it's true that Democrats, I think, are doing better in the redistricting process when you look at all of the states uh, compared to initial expectations. But that sort of positive narrative, I think, is drowning out some of just the fundamental challenges of this midterm that we've talked about with Biden and, and the generic ballot. And one, you know, one thing that can change a, a narrative, uh, which is like hard to talk about just because it's a little it makes me a little queasy thinking about it is, is the prospect of war. You know, I mean, one, one of the one of the things that George W. Bush um, was dealing with as a first-term president was the, you know, the the 9/11 attacks and and uh, and you know the the war on terror, and that you know kind of was right underway, right in the middle of all that in 2002 uh, during his you know first midterm election, and you know he uh, you know came out of uh, that State of the Union with big approval ratings. You know, there's only a few months removed from um, from from 9/11 and sort of wrote it, you know, to, to gains, uh, in, in both chambers. And it's, I mean, it's hard to think of anything kind of breaking through, but one thing that did strike me last night was how much sort of, uh, um, sort of unity there was around, uh, Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. We had the Ukrainian ambassador to the U S in the first lady's box. And, you know, there's a, this doesn't seem to be something that is dividing Washington right now. Yeah, it, it was striking at the for the first ten to fifteen minutes of the speech that was focused on Ukraine. That when they did the wide shot uh, on, on television in the speech, that there were people on both sides of the aisle clapping, like, "Oh, what a what a novel idea!" You don't often see this anymore in State of the Union speeches. But I, I think the era of a rally around the flag effect, which you know George W. Bush and, and others going back in history enjoyed, I think it's, I don't think that exists anymore or, or at this moment, because usually there's the rally around the flag effect and then there's the blame game, right? Like who, who's responsible. And that came eventually with the war in Iraq and, you know, and eventually Republicans got pounded for that. I think we, we immediately have skipped to the blame game. I mean, everyone is, uh, most people are rooting for the people of Ukraine, but there's already criticism by Republicans of, oh, this wouldn't have happened if President Trump was in office or, you know, it, it was it took minutes before we entered that. And uh, I almost only see downside politically. It's not terrible. Great to talk about downside politically for Biden, because uh, he is not going to get credit even if things go well. Let's say Russian troops do a 180 and everyone just you know, leaves immediately, Republicans will just find any number of a dozen things that they are still upset with Biden and the Democratic Party over. I mean, it's not going to, he's not going to become wildly popular. And for a president to be wildly popular, you have to have bipartisan um, praise and that it's just not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And I mean, another, another potential 
you know, narrative that some Democrats were are hoping is works to their advantage is the Supreme Court nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, she would be the first black woman uh, to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, Biden made a promise, you know, early on that he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. He has done that. Uh, barring something incredibly unforeseen, she will be confirmed. Um, but that that doesn't necessarily get them to a position of, I mean, this, this may be, this may gin up enthusiasm in their base, uh, particularly among black voters, but that's not where they're necessarily, um, they, they need the fortifying. It seems, it seems like, as you said, it's more like among independents, uh, you know, Republicans are probably not going to vote for Biden, um, except for, you know, maybe some, um, uh, people who are traumatized by the Trump years yeah. <laughs> here yeah. in Washington. I think the the confirmation, the expected confirmation of Justice uh, Jackson, is something where those where it could help his Biden's approval rating with Democratic voters. It could take it from the mid seventies to you know eighties or closer to ninety because he is delivering on that promise. But I think independent voters are are more focused on the economy, more focused on. COVID, uh, getting past some of the more kitchen table issues that uh, that are still facing still facing the country. And, and what we've seen, you know, if we take Virginia in 2021, for example, uh, independent voters in Virginia, a majority voted for Joe Biden over Trump in 2021. A majority of independent voters voted for Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, over Democrat Terry McAuliffe. And pro- I think part of that is what are voters focused on? In 2020, voters, I think more voters were focused on Trump and whether they wanted four more years of Trump or not. Now that that race is over, voters are focused on Democrats in power and are they satisfied with the direction of the country and whether the the problems that the country is facing are, are Democratic, big D Democratic problems or not. Democrats are in charge and are being held responsible for them uh, because they're the ones in leadership right now. I, I mean, I, d- I did say that the, you know, the, the primary season got underway, um, you know, on Tuesday night. I mean, there isn't another primary for a while. <laughs> I mean, Texas just likes, you know, it's not, everything's not only bigger in Texas, it's earlier in Texas, uh, by about a couple months. Um, but what are some of the things like, as, as we, you know, get a little deeper into this midterm season, you know, that you're going to be looking for as the key indicators for where this election's going? I think one one thing is what is President Trump's influence in Republican primaries? I mean, he is endorsed in in a, in a number of competitive primaries. He he's notably not endorsed in, in a couple of big ones, but I still believe that he is the most popular politician among Republican voters uh, than than any other Republicans. But is that transferable? How transferable is that popularity to other candidates? And uh, we're seeing that it's not a guarantee. Just because you get the the stamp from Trump doesn't mean you're automatically going to win. So I think that will be the key. You know, there are there are states such as uh, Ohio and Missouri that have competitive Senate races. That there are some candidates who might be more um, <laughs> problematic than than others. But those states at the same time are so have have voted so strongly Republican that I'm not sure that there is a unelectable. You know, we made references, veiled references to uh, Sharon Angle or Christine O'Donnell or or uh, or uh, the congressman Todd, from Todd Aiken. Todd Aiken, yeah, the congressman <laughs> from Missouri that I guess I, I wasn't going to name because I couldn't remember. I've, I've blocked him out of my mind. Uh, that uh, I'm not sure that it will impact the Senate map, but those Republican primaries are going to get a lot of attention because the president's going to re- the former president is going to react, right? He he wants to be 
a, a winner and be on the side of winners. And if he starts kind of racking up a couple of losses, the media is going to point it out and we'll see how he, how he reacts to that. Well, Nathan, uh, thanks so much. And I, Oh, you know, I, I should also mention, you know, like your, you know, the, your analysis of, you know, Gallup numbers too, you know, for, for those, you know, kind of interested is, is also on roll call that you'd, you'd kind of crunch the numbers for us. And, and, you know, it, what, what you saw is that, Approval ratings at this point for a president versus a president, they, they really don't change a whole lot from the beginning of the year till November of the midterm election. I mean, just talk about that real quick. Yeah. What, one thing I hear from Democrats is that, it is that there's still time between now and election day. And, and, and what, if, you know, what if we get past this and that and things get better? And so I, I just looked to say, okay, let's look at how much change is there from a president's job approval rating at this point in the midterm until election day of a midterm. And Gallup has a great archive. If you have a spare time, you can go back 70 plus years to President Truman. And I couldn't find a single president, uh, according to the Gallup numbers, who significantly improved their job approval rating uh, from this point in election uh, to to November, and that that doesn't guarantee you know, history doesn't guarantee future results, but that was a pretty striking um, number to me. I didn't know when, when I went into what it, what it was going to find, and actually the a- the average decrease in job approval was eight points. And uh, even since I wrote that a few weeks ago, uh, Biden has ticked down uh, a, a couple of points, and so it's just a, a reminder we should be open minded. But to me, history is still a strong indicator. Um, trends are still uh, worth paying attention to. And uh, I, I just, I, I started skeptical. I like to be an optimistic person, Jason, in general, but I'm, I'm skeptical that things are just going to be, uh, get better with time or things are going to be rosy. Let's, sorry, the, the, even if COVID is just an annoyance by the fall, let's, let's hope that we're healthier as a country. I don't think Biden really gets credit for it. I think it's an expectation that we get past it. Most of some of the country has already moved past COVID and, 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 and Biden hasn't gotten, you know, extra credit for that. So that is, um, that's something that Democrats usually say, well, we've never been in a pen or it's been a hundred years since we've been in a pandemic. Like, yeah, but I don't think that Biden gets a boost from it. Um, I think what we're talking about is do Republicans have a good year or a great year? It's not about do Democrats have a good year, Republicans have a good year. The whole spectrum, I think, of outcomes is on one side of you know one side of the ledger. Yeah, and and again, I, I think that you just did all of my uh, you know former political science professors uh, well there by saying like yes, you know there's there's optimism, but there's also science. There's facts. There's trends. Uh, there's things that we look at over and over again in order to measure things. So um, that's what we do. And uh, that's that's why I like talking to you, Nathan, uh, especially for this podcast. <laughs> so uh, th- thank you very much uh, for for your thoughts, and uh, we will uh, we'll wrap it at that point. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>